Praise the Lord for that great music. I want to be in the Gospel of Luke, if you'll turn to chapter 5. And today we're going to continue in our series going through Luke's Gospel. As you turn there, can anybody remember their sweet 16th birthday party? Anybody? Some of you are like, that's a little longer to remember. How many of you remember your sweet 16 or had one? How many of you didn't have one? Raise your hand. All right. Well, I remember mine. It wasn't anything big or lavish. Um, as many of you know, I started preaching when I was 15. So my mom got me this really cool cross-shaped birthday cake. It had like John 3.16 on it. And it was one of those cookie cakes. So back in the 90s, this, you know, the cookie cakes became very popular, and that was when it was trendy. Anybody ever had a cookie birthday cake? Oh, they're so good. Alex had one. Okay, good. Yeah, they're really cool. So I remember that. And I remember I had one of those really bad preacher parts. You remember the old preacher hairstyle where you had to do your hair a certain way? For whatever reason, I, I did my hair like I thought pastors should wear it. It was the preacher part on the side. And I remember thinking, I can't wait to get my driver's license. And a little confession, I haven't shared this with you guys, but I, I failed my test the first time. I don't know, if, did I tell my wife? I, I never even told her this, so a little confession. So it wasn't on the written part, it was on the driving part. Uh, for those of you native Ashvillians, Patton Avenue, I was going to the one on Smoky Park Highway, and they took me on this driving circuit. When you take a right-hand turn, there's two lanes. Um, I went all the way across traffic to the fast lane, and they're like, you can't do that. I didn't realize that. You, you can only go one lane at a time. Does anybody still repeat that mistake today? You go over two lanes at a time? Oh, yeah, some of you are nodding. So I remember that. And But part of part of a party... When you think about your special birthday party, for some of you it may be a wedding anniversary, you know, your 50th year. Uh, my parents, I remember celebrating that. Uh, it's something full of fun and celebration. What would you do if someone crashed in on your party? What if you were having a party and uninvited guests came and basically they almost shut down your party? How would that make you feel? What would be your experience? Well, today we're going to look in a passage where Jesus calls an infamous sinner to follow him. And because of this, uh, there's these people called the scribes and Pharisees, and they crash in on a party that Jesus is a part of, murmuring, complaining, grumbling. And Jesus is going to teach them a very, very valuable lesson. So the question I want to ask you today, and hopefully we can answer, is this. How does God want me to respond to those broken people on the outside? The scribes and Pharisees' main complaint with Jesus is, is he was a friend of sinners, and they didn't really like it. So how do we respond to people that are broken and on the outside? So if you will, look in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, Luke 5, 27. In your bulletin, there's a listening guide. You can follow along with us. After these things, he, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Isn't this ironic? How many days of tax do we have left? Is it two days? Two days left? Okay, this is cool how this passage falls in. So Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. So before we read the next verse, a little background. Levi's sitting probably outside of Capernaum, where Jesus has made Capernaum as his headquarters. And most likely they've had some interaction. He's probably heard Jesus preach. He may have seen the paralytic man get healed. Um, He's heard about Jesus at the very least. So Jesus tells him to get up and follow him. 
Now, in your, in your Bible listening, God, I want you to underline the word um, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw this tax collector. The original Greek word for Saul is the idea of an intense stare. It's like Jesus saw right through him into his soul. And I can imagine the awkward moment where Jesus comes up to you and there's just the silence before he says, come follow me. Verse 29, then Levi, this is after Levi follows Jesus, he gave him a great feast in his own house. And notice there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples saying, why do you eat with drink and eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let us pray. Father, this is an interesting passage about an infamous sinner and his friends that encounter Jesus. I pray that we would understand the scripture and that you would use it to change our hearts and our perspectives on how we view those on the outside of the Christian faith. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to talk about a party with a purpose. What do you do when Jesus encounters you as a sinner and he transforms you into a saint? So today I'm going to give you four principles about this party with a purpose from Matthew's perspective. Levi was his pre-conversion name, and most of us are familiar with Matthew, so we're going to use Matthew since you're familiar with that. The first principle of how God transforms a sinner into a saint is this. From Matthew's perspective, I am willing to leave everything behind when Jesus calls out my name. I'm willing to leave everything behind when Jesus calls out my name. Look at verse 27. After these things... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. So what was Matthew's job again? Tax collector. Now, there's two types of people in the world. There's those who do not like taxes and pay them. There's those who do not like taxes and don't pay them. But both parties don't like taxes. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise your hand, but... I don't think anyone in here probably says they, they enjoy giving taxes. Now, this day and time, the Roman IRS agent, Matthew, um, they were considered treacherous by the Jewish nation. Here's a little bit why, a little cultural background. Whenever Rome came in and occupied the Israelite nation, basically the Romans were the invaders. They were the foreign country. So what some Jews did, according to the Jewish mindset, is they sold out to the enemy. What they would do is they would have bids for the highest bidder from Rome. Whoever could produce the most income wealth from taxes would get the job. And guess what? You would pay Rome their set fees. And anything you collected above that was your piece of the pie. So according to history, tax collectors in this culture were notorious. In fact, you could almost give the parallel from the Jewish mindset, from the way they thought about it. These were almost like Jewish gangsters. These were like people that took money that wasn't theirs, and they, they took more than they should. And we see even earlier in Luke's gospel when tax collectors came to Jesus and said, what, what do we do? And Jesus said, don't charge more than you should. In other words, don't rip off the people. So in a way, these were kind of like the Jewish mafia of their day. They were taking too much money, sometimes by unjust means, and they were using the government to do it. 
Do you know anybody that cheats the government today to, to get themselves rich? Anyways, I digress. But they were the people that nobody liked. In the, in the same category, people would say tax collectors and what? And sinners. In fact, in Jewish culture, in many cases, these tax collectors weren't even welcome at church because they were considered unclean. And according to the priests of the day, the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, if a tax collector came inside your house, all of your family would be unclean and they couldn't go to church. So you can imagine the guilt. So Jesus had not called all, he has not called all the disciples yet. So why would he pick someone that was infamous? Why would he pick someone that, in the Jewish mindset, they would think as a mafia, someone that's taking money and taking advantage of people? I mean, that's just beyond our understanding. So a little background, this is a little tax figure since it is tax week. Did you know that in the Roman government you could be taxed for all kinds of things? I'm going to give you a few. The first one is they had a poll tax. A poll tax is if you were breathing, you had to pay taxes. The second type of tax was called the ground tax. This is where, where if you were a farmer, you had to give at least 10% of your produce, 10%. Then there was the income tax. That was the third type of tax. This one, thankfully, wasn't as bad as only 1%. Wouldn't you be glad if that was the tax code today? 1% of your money. Okay. Then there were the Roman duties. I'm not going to ask how many have a boat, but if you had a boat and you, you docked it, you could pay taxes for that. If you caught fish, you could pay taxes for that. Believe it or not, they even had a cart tax that you could be taxed based upon the number of wheels on your cart. Does that sound like our car tax today? You wonder where we get some of the things today. Um, there was import, export tax. Um, there was also the toll roads, you know, the Roman roads. You could be taxed because of using the Roman roads. So they would tax you upon taxes upon taxes. I can still remember when I took a friend, it's my first time to New York, driving at least. We went up to New York, and when I was crossing like New York, New Jersey, and you see those, they had the easy pass and the toll road, and I didn't know what any of it was. And I looked at my friend, I'm like, we have to pay taxes to get across? And we were digging through my Toyota Camry at the time to find quarters to get through, because no one told us. How are we going to get through this toll road? I was worried that if you go through without, you know, passing, I think they take a picture of your license plot and it gets even worse. But I still remember, I still have cold sweat about the New York taxes crossing through the, the toll tax. But notice that Jesus was active in Levi's life. Levi, we'll call him Matthew. Um, Jesus was active in Capernaum. And we don't know this for certain, but most likely he had probably heard Jesus preach. He probably knew the Zebedee boys. Who were they? James and John, right? He probably knew them. They had probably paid taxes on their fishing, fishing and their dad's boat. And notice that Jesus went out and saw him. And I love that Greek word. I would encourage you to look it up. It's like this idea of an intense gaze, almost a stare. Isn't it amazing when the creator of the universe focuses on you? Of all the people in the world, he zooms in on you. And then he calls Matthew to follow me. And notice Matthew left everything behind and followed him. Now, to me, in my opinion, this is even more a step of sacrifice than the fishermen. Because if you leave your nets behind, isn't it easy to go back and get another boat, get more nets? But if you're a tax collector with a contract with the Roman government, if you leave that behind, there's probably no going back. Rome's not going to give you another contract, most likely. So Matthew was laying it all down, and he was willing to follow Jesus. Did you know that Jesus is calling out your name today? 
He's telling you to leave the past, whatever that is, and to follow him. Don't have excuses for why you can't follow Jesus. Don't have reasons for why you can't follow him with your whole heart. But just like Matthew, leave all and follow Jesus. Look on your listening guides at Philippians 3, verse 7 through 8. I love what the Apostle Paul says when he's looking in his life. He says, all those things that were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Now you think about Matthew. We don't know how much money he made, but most likely he has a big house, a great feast. He probably was very, very wealthy. And he was willing to leave his shady job behind. It would be like you hear stories of drug dealers who get saved and they have to give up their trade even though they're making a lot of money. And it's like, I have to, I have to leave that behind and follow Christ. It's a big sacrifice. But notice verse 8, Paul says, The things I also count, all things for loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, when I look at the world, it gave me temporary happiness. But now I'm following Jesus and I have joy. When I look at the world, I saw success as money, wealth, and fame. And now I follow Jesus and I see success as obedience to God's call. When I was in the world, when I had money, I had friends. But when I lost the money, where were my friends? When I was throwing the big parties, I was the life of the party. But when I wasn't, all my friends were gone. So Paul and Matthew would tell us, whatever you give up for Christ... It's like rubbish and compared to the eternal riches that you gain through following Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus would say it like this. It's like a pearl of great price. That this great collector of pearls finds the most precious pearl. And he's willing to give up everything he's ever seen or owned for that one pearl. In the same way, when you discover that Christianity is the pearl of great price, you're willing to sacrifice the temporary fleeting pleasures of the world. Amen. Number two. Not only am I willing to leave everything to follow Jesus, but number two, I now want all my lost friends to also meet and follow Jesus. I now want all my lost friends to also meet and follow Jesus. Verse 29 continues. Then Levi gave a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others. Now, who are the others? Doesn't even have their names. Well, if you look at the parallel gospel, it's talking about other sinners. Here's the interesting thing about society and culture. Has anybody ever studied psychology in school? Remember your psychology classes? What's interesting is people who are marginalized, isolated, they tend to hang out with other marginalized, isolated people. That's how culture works. So Matthew, because his own Jewish people did not like him because he was a to the Roman government, in their opinion, and because tax collectors had such a notorious reputation for ripping people off, that the only people that would get along with Matthew were other tax collectors, other sinners. And the sinners category would be the prostitutes and the people that were just the, considered the, the people that no one wanted to be around. And you know what's interesting about this, this passage is Matthew, instead of going through a class about how to share your faith, instead of going through the four spiritual laws, he did what only he knew best to do. Since Matthew was a worldly person, a partier, what did he do? He threw a party. And guess who he invited? Guess who his guests of honors were? The most notorious people of that society, the tax collectors and sinners. And as we read this, it's interesting that Matthew was not a closet Christian. 
Matthew was reached by Jesus, and now he's wanting to reach people for Jesus. The interesting thing, just by way of application, the best way to reach the unchurched is to reach one lost person, and you become friends with all their friends. Did you ever think about that most lost people hang out with other lost people? You ever notice that? So if you want to reach lost people, you have to start with one lost person, meet their friends and family. I don't know about you, but sometimes being a Christian, we have a tendency to get in Christian bubbles. So when you say, tell me five lost people that you know on a personal level, not just co-worker, but personal, we struggle. But here's the thing we can learn from Matthew. Whenever you have been reached by Jesus, you want to reach people for Jesus. Amen. Notice Matthew's party on your listening God. I discovered three P's about his party. It was a personal party. It was personal because he, he used his own house. He said, I want you, Jesus, to come to my house. It was also a prolific party. Notice that he invited a large number of people. A large number of people came to his house. And it was a purposeful party. Why did he do it? He wanted his friends and his co-workers also to meet Jesus. Um, a surprising insight I discovered through studying this Uh, One pastor pointed out two points I never thought of. He said, you notice that the religious leaders were really taking aback that Jesus was eating with the the scum of society, if you will, these tax collectors, these sinners, these people of the world. Because in that day and time, the Jewish culture is whenever you ate with somebody, it was very personal. It was almost like inviting someone over to your family Christmas party. Normally, you don't invite someone over to your family Christmas party unless they're really close or you really want to reach out. Well, in a Jewish culture, when you ate with somebody, that was personal and intimate. It was much more deeper than even in our culture. So when Jesus ate with the people, when it was considered guilt by association. Jesus, what are you doing with these people? And one of the pastors brought up this point. There's two surprising insights into this that I think we should look at. Number one, Jesus was having fun. You ever notice that Christianity is normally not known for fun? The second thing is Matthew was being very generous. He opened up his home. He invited all his friends. He's being very hospitable. And you can ask any waitress in Asheville and ask them, what is your least favorite shift to work? You know what shift they'll usually tell you? Sunday after church. And you know why? Most Christians expect the most but give the least of even lost people. We're usually not known for generosity nor for our fun. And tell me if I'm wrong, but Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, right? And you see Jesus here at a party. And before you get all riled up inside, Jesus didn't come to sin with the sinners, but he came to rescue the sinners. And we'll see this in the following verses. He came to bring repentance to sinners. So here's the thing we can learn. On one side, we don't want to go to extreme where we're just hanging out with with the people of the world, just to build relationships, and that's it. They don't get the gospel. On the other side, we don't want to be so isolated that we don't have lost friends. But the method of Jesus was he built relationships so he could share himself and share the gospel. He didn't just have a friendship. He had a friendship with a gospel purpose. And I see the church on both sides. Some people are so close to the world, and there's no gospel. And the other side, we're so isolated, and there's no sinners. I've heard it said that in a, in a healthy church... You'll kind of have this dynamic. You'll have one-third of the people that are mature saints, and they're reaching the community, and the community's coming in. The other one-third is lost people that are hearing the gospel. They're coming in. People are sharing their faith. They're becoming new believers. 
The new believers are getting discipled. So it's kind of like a one-third scenario. You have one-third that's growing and healthy and dynamic. The other one-third, they're kind of people that are brought in that need the gospel. And the other one-third are new believers that are being discipled. Whenever you get that kind of off, you have the, the holy huddles over here, you know, the chosen frozen when there's no new people. Or have you been in another extreme where you're in a church and it doesn't feel like a church? They're all lost people and you're like, this is, this is weird. You need a balance. And I think one of the practical applications we can do is you're, you're thinking, well, how does this make relevance to my life April in 2018? I mean, what, what can I do? Here's a challenge to think about. Throw a Matthew party at your house. Now, some of you are very social. Some of you are good. I've been over your houses, and I've had the, the coffee and the cakes and the fun times. Now, here's a what if. What if you, like Matthew, invited all your lost friends, and some of you are like, well, I don't have any lost friends. Well, let's, let's work on your neighbors first. Invited all your lost friends, your neighbors, to your house, and we threw a party. We had a cookout. We had fun. We had celebration. And we said something like, why don't you come back next week because we're going to do a Bible study. It's a party with a purpose. And I really think churches would be growing a lot faster if we'd get outside the four walls of the church and the inner community. I think we can learn so much from Matthew. But one thing before we go into the next point, we've got to realize Jesus is the life of the party. People may not realize it, but Jesus is the life of the party. And by the way, you remember the fun you had after the party. And you don't have guilt about it. Jesus is the light and the life of the world. And he's come to turn our ordinary life into extraordinary life. Only Jesus can take a dead soul and make it living again. Amen? He can turn your sorrow into joy. Number three, how can we make sense of Matthew and his conversion? I will not let the complainers deter me from my mission. I will not let the complainers deter me from my mission. Look at verse 30. And what happens? The religious police show up, the scribes and Pharisees. And they start complaining against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here's just a, a thought, a question. How did they even know about it? Were they in the house with the people? Have you ever thought about that? How, how did they know? Um, that, that's a great question to think about because it's like, are you, are you in the party too? Well, in this culture, it was very... Uh, it was very ordinary for someone to walk by and you could, they could look into your house. You ever been to some cultures where people on the patio and it's like open environment where the houses, when they stay in the Palestinian culture, you could see what was going on. So most likely they weren't in the party. They were on the outside looking in. And wouldn't that be awkward if someone came by your house and was looking through the window? Wouldn't that be kind of... It would be very different in their culture, but in other cultures it's it's more about the community. So... They were looking in and they were complaining. It reminds me of this true story. This happened um, several decades ago. You guys remember when movies used to be the film strips? Well, there was a creative youth pastor, and he was in a, a special church. It was kind of a, a culturally different from his culture. And he, he was doing youth ministry, and he said, you know, I'm going to do something a little innovative for this time. He, he wanted to show a black-and-white Christian film about missions. And it wasn't anything edgy or anything. He shows this film. An hour into the film, the religious leaders of that church, I guess it were the deacons, came and said, son, we've got to talk to you. So they pulled him out in the hallway, and they're like, we heard that you're playing a movie in church. Is that correct? And the pastor said, yeah, uh, what, what's the problem? And they said, son, playing a movie in church is sin. And the youth pastor said, well, we showed pictures of our last missions conference. Uh, you guys are okay with that. The deacon stopped, waved his hand and said, listen, son. 
He said, if it's still, it's fine. If it moves, it's sin. You can show slides, but when they start moving, you're starting to sin. <laughs> true story, true story. So, you know, we laugh, but in our culture, we have our own things that aren't in the Bible that we think sin. And you're like, what is the standard of what's sin or not? Well, is it in the Bible black and white? See, the, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees is they would add things to the Bible. There's a scripture insight in your Bible there. It comes from Fan the Flame book. I'm not going to read it all, but basically they, they composed the list of 613 commandments. 365 negative, thou shalt not, and 248 positive laws, thou shalt. And then on top of that were all other types of rules they added on top of that. And you talk about it end up, this, this true religion end up becoming rules and regulations alone. And their hearts started off right, they wanted to serve God, but it came about fulfilling a list of rules. And the problem with that is these rule keepers rejected Christ. Because Christ, what he did is he said it's about your relationship with God and others. Love God and love people. If you do that, the rules fall into place. If you look on your listening guide, there's six, six things about grace that we may not understand. And this is where the scribes and Pharisees, the reason why they complained and didn't understand is they didn't understand grace. They understood truth, but they didn't understand grace. Now, here's the distinction, and this is where churches we struggle. Some churches are truth churches, heavy on truth, but light on grace. That leads to legalism. When you have truth without grace, it's legalistic, rigid. Some of you are shaking your hands because you've been in these hellfire brimstone type churches. On the other hand, we just love Jesus, and he's great, and... He died on the cross for you and everything's okay. Just pray this prayer. And it's heavy on grace, but light on truth. And it leads to theological liberalism where everything goes and there's no truth. Where the tension is, you've got to have truth and grace because Jesus was full of grace and truth. He didn't go to either extreme. He told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, yet he didn't cast a stone. And that's where the tension is with churches. And I'm not saying we always get it right. Some of you are truth people and you lean this way. Some of you are grace people. But hopefully together we can try to meet in the middle and balance each other out. Amen. So look at about grace. It's not earned. It's a gift that must be received. It makes us right with God through Jesus Christ. Nothing you do. It's God's love in action. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his son. It's a gift that we are to use to build up others. Talking about your grace gift, your spiritual gift. It's often given to us, ironically, when we are at our weakest. So if you're in a weak moment right now, a weak spot, you're a good candidate for God's grace. What did, Paul tell, what did the Lord tell Paul when he had the thorn in the flesh? My grace is sufficient in your weakness, for when you're weak, then I'm strong. I read a parable about this horrible husband. I don't know if it's a true story, but it was a parable, probably based upon a true story. And hopefully none of the ladies will amen me for this. But it was about this tyrannical husband. And he had three rules for his new bride. Basically, he said, you're going to be my wife, number one. You're going to be the mother of my kids, number two. And you're going to be a homemaker. I can already tell the women get upset. And he said, when it comes to being my wife, when I get up in the morning, I expect breakfast. When I get home at night, I expect you to rub my feet. When I get ready for dinner, I expect a sandwich. And he had this list. The ladies are already getting sick. Okay, the rules for being a homemaker. I expect the house to be clean. I work all day, so you better work when I get back. And he had this long list. And when it comes to the kids, changing diapers, that's a woman's job. It's not my job. I wouldn't work in my house, by the way. Too many diapers. So in time, the woman that loved this man 
it grew into this cold, rigid. She, she, she just made the choice not to love him. She despised him because of the rules. In time, whether fortunately or unfortunately, the husband died. And in time, as the years passed by, she met this new guy and fell in love. And he was like the really energetic, romantic type, took her on the walks on the beach, and they just had a great life. And one day she was cleaning the house. And you know what she discovered in her drawer? It was the old list her husband gave her about being a mom, uh, being a wife, being a housemaker. And she went through each rule, and to her surprise, she was doing all the rules without being asked to do so. The husband never asked her to do. She was making food. She was loving on him. And she did it not out of obligation, but out of love. You see the parallel? The scribes and Pharisees got it wrong. They, they had the rules, okay? They had a lot of rules in order, but they were doing it out of the wrong reasons. It's because we love God. We're not trying to play off this checklist. We follow God because we love God. And if you obey out of love, it's great. It's a relationship. If you obey just because you have to, it becomes a legalistic religion. And that's where they got it. So I will not let complainers deter me from my mission. Number four, I was changed by this one truth, Matthew could tell us. Only those who realize they are sick can get well again. Only those who realize they are sick can get well again. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, we have some doctors in the audience. Has anybody ever complained to you that you see too many sick people? Wouldn't that be kind of weird? Has Mission Hospital, Pardee, or Park Ridge, have any of the hospitals ever got a threatening letter that you guys have too many sick patients? <laughs> that would be crazy, right? Well, what Jesus is saying is, I am the divine doctor. I'm the great physician. And God has called me to do a heart transplant because everyone has a terminal sickness some don't realize it, but everyone has a terminal sickness called sin. And the only way to get rid of this terminal sickness is a heart transplant. Whenever someone invites Christ into their life, he takes out their old heart and he puts a brand new heart inside. That's called being born again. So Jesus said, do you not get it that I'm a, I'm a divine doctor? I'm God in the flesh. And the reason why I hang out with sick people is so that I can heal them. See, there's two types of people in the world. There's those who are crazy and realize it, and those who are crazy and don't realize it. Matthew's friends at this party, they were all crazy. They knew it, and everybody knew it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were crazy and sick, but they didn't know it. They had never heard the diagnosis that you're dying. So I'm going to ask uh, Brother Bob to come up. He's in the back. We have um, a whiteboard. For those of you who don't know Bob, he was a... He's a retired doctor, podiatrist, right? So I figured I'd let a retired doctor come and tell us about if I'm a sick patient, uh, what, what can I do? So, Bob, show us. Like he says, it's not the healthy that come to the doctor, it's the sick. So... It's a great time to witness to people when, when you see someone hurting. I, I do a jail ministry, and I see people hurting. And Timothy presented this method to me a couple months back. It's called the three circles method. And um, I have a Matthew party every Wednesday when I go into jail with people that Matthew probably came across. So I'm going to just show it to you real simple. It's also uh, called a, a napkin ministry. 
Timothy made a point earlier in the morning service about when we go in to eat after uh, church, we don't tip very well as Christians. And uh, a lot of times I've found that sometimes your waitress is hurting. If you ask, hey, do you have a special prayer request when you bless the food? And you can also present this as somebody at a restaurant on a napkin, which is easy. It takes like one minute to do. And uh, we're called to be witnesses to the world. And so this is a, a quick way, and, and people are willing to take a minute out of their life to get the presentation. So it's the three circles. So the first circle is called God's design. God made the world perfect. He wanted us to only know good. And what happened was the devil deceived us. He did not want us to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He only wanted us to know good. So the devil said, well, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. Everybody wants to be like God. That's our sin, pride. So the man was standing next to the woman, and they ate of the tree. And, and what happened was God can't stand sin. So they were rejected out of the garden because of sin. Sin entered the world. First, first death. They had to kill an animal to cover themselves because they realized they were naked. Second sin, you know, uh, Cain killed Abel. So you're, you're going into this, seeing the snowball effect of what sin occurred. So man was expelled from the garden, and they're out of that perfect world. And they're now in this area of brokenness. They're in an area without God. They're in a world without God because God cannot stand sin. So they're over here. So when I go into jail, I hear it every week. How are they trying to fill that void without God in the world? Well, they do it with drugs. It's a big one. Alcohol, power, you know, they're abusive. They're strong. They're strong men. They try to <laughs> they try to show you how strong they are. But when you present this, that, you know, your problem is that you kick God out of your life. And you, and you tell them, hey, you're in this brokenness. And if you don't get out of this, this is going to be generational. Your family is going to be in this broken circle. Your kids are going to be in prison here before long. Your whole family is in here now. But the beautiful thing is, Jesus is in this cell with you. So how do we get out of this? So I'm going to turn it over to Timothy and show you. All right. As Bob was saying, this is something you can share on a napkin. It's called the three circles. So God's design, he created us perfectly, but sin brought brokenness. There is good news. The third circle is the gospel. And uh, misspelling the gospel here. <laughs> the third circle is the gospel. And the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he did what? He rose to new life. So in our brokenness, God enters into our brokenness. And he calls us and he invites us to believe the gospel. And in order to receive it, we have to repent. That means to turn from our sins. And we have to believe the good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. If we receive Jesus and what he did, all of a sudden God does something amazing and beautiful. He begins to restore us back to God's design. And we can recover. And we can pursue what God has for us. So really this is the cycle. And this process will be eventually be fully restored when we see Jesus face to face. So this is the gospel, the three circles. So let's give Bob a hand for helping us out today.
So just to review this message, um, if you'll look at your listening guide, we have four basic points. Matthew would tell us that if you want to follow Jesus, what do you have to do? You have to leave all behind and what? And follow him. And I love how he calls Matthew by name. And today he's calling us all by name to follow him. Number two, we learn that we must want all our lost friends also to meet and follow Jesus. Those who have been reached by Jesus should want to reach for Jesus. Number three, we learn I will not let complainers deter me from my mission. Whenever you attempt to do something great for God, you'll have people who are complainers on the outside. Don't let them deter you. And finally, Matthew could tell us, and may we say the same, I was changed by this truth. Only those who realize that they are sick can get well again. So to summarize this into one sentence, the sermon in a sentence, you can't become healed and whole again until you first realize that you're lost, broken, and in need of a Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you're doing something amazing in our midst. We thank you that you've come to give us life and it more abundantly. Right now, with, with no one looking around, I want to talk to the believers first. How many would say, Pastor Timothy, you know, this whole gospel of Luke has really challenged me to reach out to the lost. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. And I really need to have a greater passion for those who are on the outside and broken. That's you. Raise your hand. I'll raise my hand with you. Father, you see the hands. Forgive us where we're, we stay in the Christian bubble so long that we're not a good witness to those on the outside. And as the believers continue to pray, there may be one here today that would say, Timothy, I'm still in brokenness. You mentioned about God's design and how he made everything perfect, but I, I'm still in brokenness. Friend, if you're willing to repent of your sin and believe the gospel, God will begin the process of restoring you. As you pursue Jesus, right where you're sitting, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, just say something like this. Jesus, I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again to new life. Jesus, I need new life. Please take my dead soul and make me living. Please take my life and change me. I repent of my sins. ask for your forgiveness. I make you my Lord, my Savior my best friend. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you for hearing all the prayers going up. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.